Hey guys, welcome to episode 40 of Raw Talk. If you've listened to our last couple episodes, you know we've been talking a lot about cancer, specifically about the long-term side effects of its treatment. That's because more and more people are surviving cancer. In fact, around two-thirds of people diagnosed with cancer can expect long-term survival. This number goes as high as 85 to 95% in diseases like breast and prostate cancer. It's a good news story, but it's not the end of the story. And our guest today is going to be talking about her role as director of Elixir, the Cancer Rehabilitation and Survivorship Program at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Jennifer Jones, senior scientist at Princess Margaret, is also an associate professor of the Department of Psychiatry and Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. She's co-lead of the Canadian Cancer Survivorship Research Consortium and the Butterfield Drew Chair in Cancer Survivorship Research. Kat and I sat down with her to discuss how and why the survivorship program came about, how the program has evolved since it opened its doors in 2010, and what it looks like now. We discussed how resilience is promoted within the team, and, of course, Dr. Jones shared her research program on survivorship and the projects she's currently working on. By the end of the discussion, Kat and I were wondering how we could join the Elixir team. You'll see why. Let's dive into the episode. We mentioned you're the director of the Cancer Survivorship and Rehabilitation Program mm-hmm. at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, mm-hmm. and that's the role that I've always known you in, um, but I guess we wanted to start off to a little bit today and ask about how did you get to, to this position, and what was your journey to, to becoming the director here? Well, I started actually as an IMS student. Uh, doing my master's and at that time my focus was on love uh, a good alumni story yeah (laughs) I know I know it was a great experience uh so I was working with actually with Gary as my supervisor Gary Roden working actually in eating disorders and uh, type 1 diabetes looking at uh, prevalence of eating disorders and the study that I was doing for my master's sort of ballooned into this really large uh, prevalence study so I was doing it in three different cities in on in Ontario Mm -hmm different school boards and the pediatric hospitals and stuff. So I transferred over to a PhD after a couple of years. And then and then when I finished my PhD, I was looking at postdocs and I was interviewing in the States and here. And it was the same time that Gary was actually moving over to build uh, the psychosocial oncology program at Princess Margaret. And I was really, I was interested in sort of changing gears a little, doing something a little bit different. Uh, my training was in psychosomatics and the impact of sort of psychological states on health and uh, behavioral sciences and those types of things. So I was very interested in sort of oncology. And so I moved over with Gary. I had an opportunity to come over and do a, I say over just because it's across university avenue. Yeah. So <laughs> moved uh, across the street away from the, uh, I was in the, the college wing actually for my, when I was doing my grad okay. studies, like the now Mars building, that oh, beautiful yeah. Mars building. Yeah. So uh, we went over and uh, started the psychosocial oncology program. And so I was focusing at that point for my postdoc in palliative care and looking at quality of life, reporting of quality of life from both patient Mm -hmm. perspective and use of proxies to report quality of life. And I I also did at the same time a fellowship in oncology education with Pam Catton. So developing different Mm -hmm. educational interventions to teach oncology healthcare professionals around psychosocial oncology, breaking bad news, those types of things. And, and your supervisor actually ended up starting the survivorship program. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, so sorry, I'm stopping there, but it's not the end of the story. Yeah, so uh, so then following my postdoc, I... Actually, can I ask a question yeah. there? Um, mm-hmm. So usually, I mean, we're always told you need to move around a little bit mm-hmm. and to yes. build your sort of scientific career, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and, and you stayed with Gary, actually. And is that common? And did you think that was going to impact you at all? And obviously it hasn't. But yeah. what made you sort of decide to stay here? It's a great question, because I actually I also encourage even my own trainees to move Leave. around, yeah. like even my summer students, like <laughs> they often want to come back every yeah. summer. And I tell them you should go somewhere else. Yeah. You need to get experience in other places. Because I do think it's important. I, I guess the way I looked at it as I was going to be doing something different, even sure. though it was with yeah. Gary, and I was going to be working with a new supervisor with Pam. So mm-hmm. I did have a little bit, like it was quite a bit of a change in terms of the whole population that I was working with. So I had that. I was. I decided I didn't want to make a big change to go to the States. I'm a bit more of a creature of habit. Like I'm not one of these mm-hmm. adventurous people that moves across the country. So I do sort of like what's familiar to me. <laughs> so yeah. I just decided to stay. And then the other thing is, is that UHN and Princess Margaret and the reputation that they have, if you get a postdoc at Princess Margaret, you know, it means something. It means yeah. a lot. You're not going to get, I don't think any more of a, in Canada, perhaps. in Canada or even in the States, like a yeah. better, a better experience. So I knew Gary, I knew I worked well with Gary and, I was excited about uh, working with Pam, so I knew it was going to be a positive experience. Mm-hmm. You're taking a bit more of a gamble when you're going to an unknown and you're not really sure what you're going to get. And so, so the, yeah. the survivorship yeah. program came about when you were ending your fellowship? Or right, so um, it ha- not yet. So for a couple of years, I continued working with Gary and with Pam. But then in 2005, uh, Pam started the Breast Cancer Survivorship Program. And at that point, I sort of started transitioning more and more over to that side and really working with with that program and not working as much with palliative. And I'd already taken a couple mat leaves too, and sort of things were getting broken up in my uh, career and my focus too, because I, I started, I don't know, I was with, with little kids and stuff. I was having a hard time doing the palliative stuff. I, I found it emotionally really draining. I just naturally moved over to that program a little bit more. It was fun uh, working with Pam and she was building a new team and bringing on new people. Um, but the other thing is there's such an overlap with psychosocial, with what Gary was building, what Pam wa- was was building at the same time. Yeah. I ended up sort of being this natural bridge between the two programs, which which I have always sort of been. Now it's changed because we're all under one umbrella. Over the past couple of years, we've sort of all joined under supportive care, so it works well. But up until then, I was really the the bridge between the two programs, still involved with psychosocial mm-hmm. and POPSI, and then involved with uh, oncology education and with uh, survivorship and often telling each other what the others are doing mm-hmm. or bringing people together for projects and stuff like that so it was, mm-hmm. it was good but yeah so then I was in survive breast cancer survivorship and then I got the opportunity to be the director of uh, research and the elixir center opened in 2010 and at that point became an associate director with the Elixir Center and we really that really catapulted our program and really to have this additional infrastructure was fantastic so we were able to really build the program and at that point all my time was really spent with um, survivorship and I just want to back up for a second Mm -hmm. how exactly did the program come about Mm -hmm. because it was focused primarily on breast cancer it started yes certainly it started in the breast site and the reason for that is because all of our programs are funded through the foundation at that point the foundation was doing the weekend to end breast cancer Mm -hmm. which was a big walk that they did to raise money and they would 
ask the walkers where they wanted the money sort of directed or what were their priorities. They often would, uh, I guess, send out surveys or whatever. And it was actually the walkers themselves that were asking for a survivorship program and saying that it was something that they felt was important for them. Um, What were the barriers that sort of they were facing that... I think that, I'm, that yeah, I mean, I think part of it was because more and more people were surviving breast cancer. There weren't really, our, our system, and it's, it remains this way, it really wasn't set up to meet their ongoing needs to sort of get recovered and uh, deal with some of the persistent side effects. Some of the main things in breast would, were, were like lymphedema, functional mobility problems, like fatigue. And so they really, you know, anybody who had f- um, lymphedema, which is, you know, uh, like not a, not everybody gets that, but it's a substantial minority of people will have that and didn't have resources to go to. So we started the breast cancer survivorship program and it was just in the breast site at that point. And the first clinic we started up was lymphedema. What is lymphedema for? So yeah, 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 yeah. Lymphedema actually can happen anywhere in your body. It's Mm -hmm. like a a swelling in the body. I mean, Mm -hmm. just to make it very simple. So for people who have had breast cancer, it's a result when they have lymphatic lymph node dissection, it can interrupt the lymphatic system. And so what happens is you would get a swelling in the the affected arm on the Mm -hmm. side that you might have had that dissection but you can also like in head and neck patients they can get it sort of in their neck people who have had uh, lymph node dissection in their pelvic area for example anybody who's had like any sort of GI or GU cancers sometimes will have that or like testicular cancer Mm -hmm. they can have the swelling in their legs at the beginning of the program we were seeing like really very swollen limbs Mm -hmm. and stuff but because it's getting detected earlier and because also there's just advances in the surgical techniques so there isn't as much damage I guess you're not seeing as much severe lymphedema anymore but it's a chronic lifelong condition people have to learn how to manage it so that was your first clinic that was our first clinic, and then we opened the fatigue clinic, functional mobility, and and then a few years later after that, the walk actually expanded to be the weekend and women's cancers. At that point, we expanded to the gynae site, started seeing patients from the gynae site mm-hmm. in the same clinic, same issues. And then a few years after that, the head and neck site actually approached us with some donor money. And we started seeing those patients who have really very high issues in terms of recovery. Mm-hmm. We added some other clinics. We added a neurocognitive clinic for patients who had sort of uh, neurocognitive changes after their treatment. Mm-hmm. So some people call that chemo fog or... Mm. And it's not necessarily totally related to chemo. People report having it after other treatments as well. We brought on Laurie Bernstein, who's our neuropsychologist, and sees those patients. Then over the years, we added sort of return to work as a consult. And a few years ago, we brought on a a physiatrist, Dr. Eugene Chang, who's the first cancer trained cancer rehabilitation physiatrist in uh, Canada and he he uh, Pam brought him on which was fantastic for us and so he started doing consults and seeing Mm -hmm. patients Um, wow yeah yeah which was great you know so it slowly evolved and then a couple years ago we just did a huge program sort of redesign following Pam Catton's death. Part of it was because, again, our funding, like our funding was always sort of evolving and changing. But also when I took on the role of sort of an interim director of the program, 
One of the things that I really wanted to push was access to our program for all the disease sites at Princess mm -hmm. Margaret. I didn't want it to just be reserved to these three disease sites that we historically had been servicing. But I realized that actually our funding from the foundation wasn't just coming from the walk anymore. Mm -hmm. It was coming from many different sources. In fact, the ride was giving us quite a lot of money. And then a couple of years ago, the walk changed to the one walk. It wasn't even mm -hmm. cancer specific anymore. And so it was kind of hard for us to say, well, we're only going to provide our services to these mm -hmm. sites when really our funding was coming. There are survivors um, in every yeah, there are, cancer, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. So. And from and an equity like point of view. And issues too. Yeah. Or similar yeah. ones. Well, each site has, there are cross-cutting issues mm -hmm. for sure. So things like the fatigue. You returning know, those, to work. Yeah, return to work. Those types of things are, are going to be across neurocognitive changes, changes. That's across all disease sites. Mm -hmm. And then within each disease site, there are some specific sort of side effects of their treatments because of their surgeries or those types of things yeah. that we have to sort of adapt to. And so every time we bring on a new disease site, you know, the team has to work with that disease site to get familiar with what are the, what with that patient population and yeah. to figure out how to, how to manage it. So it's been great having Dr. Chang because he's really helpful in that, but we mm -hmm. also work really closely with the disease site and sort of shadow them and yeah. learn what, you know, how they deal with the things, what, mm -hmm. what are the needs, and then do some in-service and things like that with our program. So it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been successful, but what we realized was that in order to meet the needs of all of the hospital, basically, we had to sort of change the way that we were doing business so it's weird to yeah it, like that. <laughs> it does sound funny like that but before that as I said we had all these sort of clinics that we were running and so a patient would just get referred to a specific clinic for example they could get referred to the fatigue clinic and then they could also get referred to the neurocognitive clinic to me that wasn't really a very patient-centered approach mm -hmm. uh, because what we would often see is that patients would come to the fatigue clinic they'd have their consult there but then during that consult we'd realize oh, they have a neurocognitive problem. Issues. Or yeah. we'd also see that they had a referral to the neurocognitive and then they'd have to come for another appointment, get a full other assessment there. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, they're coming for multiple appointments and we were sort of often repeating some of the assessment. And so we decided that we wanted to sort of put everything together and have people just come to one place. So there's one one referral form for our program and on that referral form the oncologist would indicate what the issue is just so we know and screen to make sure that they're actually an appropriate referral uh, but then they would come into the program and have one comprehensive assessment with either mm -hmm. occupational therapy or physiotherapy and or Dr. Chang mm -hmm. and at that assessment even if they're referred for one thing, we would do a very comprehensive assessment of physical, psychological, vocational functioning, sort of identify all of the needs of the patient at that one assessment, and mm. then develop a care plan for that patient based on our assessment, but also on the patient's stated goals and what, what it is that they want to do. And then based on that, we would sort of uh, feed them into uh, services, whether they're in our program or in the community or at TRI or UH, other mm -hmm. services within UHN. So yeah. we sort of risk stratify and uh, triage patients out to different services, but we also offer an eight-week cancer rehab program that mm -hmm. we try to drive most patients through. We do have one-on-one -on -one consults with mm -hmm. some of our specialists. Hey everyone, it's Erin. As you just heard about the survivorship program that Dr. Jones has built at the Princess Margaret, we thought it'd be interesting to hear from a patient who actually has been going through this program and to tell us a bit more about his experiences with his cancer and the survivorship program. 
I was incredibly fortunate to have been connected with the lovely Mr. Lloyd Davidson, a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor who received treatment at the Princess Margaret for his cancer and then was subsequently referred to the survivorship program. I spoke with him on the phone last week, and this is what Lloyd had to share with me about his cancer experience. I was treated for, with, uh, for Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1997 and again in 2015. Each treatment took about a year to complete. Uh, it helps a lot to understand how chemotherapy works. Your body has trillions of cells that divide and reproduce constantly. Some reproduce much more frequently than others. Chemotherapy targets cell division. Cancer cells reproduce much more frequently than normal cells, so the chemo hopefully affects those cells more than others. However, the cells in your body that reproduce more often than others are also affected by chemo. Things like hair, mouth, digestive tract, and reproductive organs. Essentially, any cell that is dividing while chemo drugs are present is affected. There's a limit to how much your body can take chemo drugs. Oncologists are very careful not to exceed those limits. Essentially, they need to use as much chemo drugs as they can, being careful not to kill the host, which of course in this case was me. The bottom line is that chemo is a dreadfully difficult thing to go through. Chemo is not one thing. Chemo can be very different from person to person, more importantly from one type of cancer to another. So what I experienced is not necessarily the same as you will. In my case, I experienced all the kinds of digestive tract nasties you can imagine. That I got over pretty quickly. But in my case, the most serious side effects were major mus loss of muscle tissue, lung damage, a weak and hoarse voice, as you can readily hear, skin thinning, permanent hair loss, and a chronic cough. Pardon me in advance. Recovering from treatment at the age of 78, I discovered it was much harder than at age 60. I have been an exercise walker ever since my 2005 heart surgery that I needed in part because of the first cancer treatment. Walking after this second time was very difficult. My balance was poor. I could only stand for brief periods, almost no grip strength, very limited tolerance for exercise. I could barely lift things. One year after treatment, I just was not getting any better, and Dr. Cucretti, my oncologist, asked me to rate my recovery on a scale of 1 to 10, and I responded mine was a 2. It was at this point where Lloyd's oncologist referred him to the survivorship program, and where he met with Kaylee Trewartha, a kinesiologist with the program. Lloyd talked to me about how Kaylee spent many hours with him to really understand his background and condition, and performed a number of tests to measure his condition. Kaylee then outlined a set of exercises for Lloyd to do at home by himself. That was December 4, 2017. He details his continued adherence to the exercises prescribed by Kaylee to this day. I do these exercises every two days and walk in Yorkdale Mall the same days. Yorkdale is a very large indoor mall, provides a one-mile track for just one trip around. Kaylee met with me again three months later and again three months after that, and she will meet me another three months later from now each time adjusting the exercises by adding and subtracting, increasing reps, and after a new set of measurements and tests. As you can probably tell, Lloyd has maintained an excellent exercise regimen, and when I asked him about how he thinks the survivorship program has impacted him, this is what he had to say. I, I'm delighted to report that I've gained back about half that 75% of muscle loss that I experienced. That's a lot, and I have much better balance, and now walk two miles every other day. 
and do that now at an average speed of three and a half miles an hour. It took me just 34.3 minutes to do my two miles this morning. I spend about an hour doing the full range of exercise that Kaylee has outlined for me, uh, and we'll do that again today. Bottom line, my condition outlook has vastly improved. I feel a lot better and feel a lot more optimistic. I need to add that the exercise has very significantly improved my cognitive and memory skills, a plus that was not expected, and that is something that is quite critical when you're 80 years old. Overall, I have reached a probably a five or six on that 10-point scale, and I still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> and I must add that I went through a rehab program after my heart surgery, and it was not effective for me at all. Throughout this whole experience that Lloyd shared with me, he had some final words about what the survivorship program really meant to him and what it represents. Survivorship rehab in this program is really different. It is not a one-size-fits-all program. It is a customized one-on-one program as it should be, and as it must be, and is vastly more effective. Overall, I'm an improved man and delighted to have been through this program, and I only wish I'd have known about it earlier. Thank you so much again to Lloyd for sharing your experiences with me and with all of our listeners. If you want to hear more from him, he was also involved in creating a Meet the Cancer Heroes video for the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, and this can be found on their YouTube channel and on the Foundation's Facebook page. Now back to the main episode. So another cool thing about the survivorship program is how integrated research is into the clinical work. And you yourself uh, are not a clinician. Your background is in, in academia and in mm-hmm. research. So how, how did that integration come about? Were there any challenges that you encountered with trying to bring research more to the forefront of the clinical practice? I would No, I wouldn't say that there were any challenges for me because mm-hmm. that was the model that Pam mm-hmm. really built because... She actually started by hiring researchers. So we came, it was researchers really before she hired clinicians, and we yeah. were here first. And then the clinicians came on, and she always held meetings all together. So it was just the culture of our program mm-hmm. that we we met together and we, you know, worked together on our on our projects. But for me, it's the right model. Like, it's, mm-hmm. I think it's fantastic. I wouldn't want to work in any other situation mm-hmm. Often academics are separated or the researchers yeah. are separated from the clinicians. Either they're at the university and or they're, you know, in a different building mm-hmm. or not really at all knowing each other or inter- interacting with each other. And it makes it difficult for like a lot of reasons. I mean, I think mm-hmm. when you're integrated the way we are, the research that we do is informed by the clinicians and also the patients. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, they're the ones that come to us and say, these are the issues, these are the problems. This is, you know, we need to find solutions. And so we'll do research around that. These are the gaps in care. These are the needs of the patients. And then the great thing about it is then when we're done the research, we can integrate that very easily back into practice. Mm -hmm. So it allows for sort of a quick turnover, but it ensures that we're doing relevant research as well. That's great. Yeah. What are your plans for the future of this program? (laughs) Mm -hmm. We do consider ourselves sort of an innovation uh, program, which means that we're never stagnant. We never never have a a standard of care, and then that's just going to be it forever. So as people who know us know that we're always changing things. You like to change at least one thing per year, introduce 
every some. year we have mm -hmm. a couple priorities of uh, initiatives that we'd like to move forward. So the last couple of years mm -hmm. actually have really been focused on changing our model of care to away from the sort of siloed clinics to this more comprehensive model. And that was a, a massive amount of work because it required, you know, mm -hmm. the development of a new referral forms, just getting involved with all the disease sites that we had never worked with before. So mm -hmm. it was going and doing rounds and presenting and answering questions and shadowing. And mm -hmm. there's, you know, lots of disease sites we weren't working with. So huge amounts of work, developing materials, developing the content uh, and curriculum for the eight week program, what the consults look like, referrals into the community and making sure that those are happening more seamlessly instead of just handing somebody a pamphlet and saying, you're going to go to Wellspring. We actually developed with Wellspring referral forms so the patients can get over there and Wellspring's aware of why the patients are coming. Wellspring's just one example, but there's lots of other community partners that we work with and working more closely with TRI because at the same time, mm -hmm. Toronto Rehab became part of UHN, which is great for us, provided us with more resources for our patients, so for the patients that have very serious impairments that require more one-on-one -on -one intensive care. We can send them to TRI with Dr. Chang they can see the team there and then the idea is that they then come back to us and go through our eight-week program. So, I mean, that's just a long way to say that it's been a large amount of work and we're still obviously mm -hmm. continuing to refine all of that. But in addition to that, now I think we're in a good place. We're actually, what we're seeing, it's a good challenge, a happy challenge, uh, more referrals coming in. So just trying to manage wait lists, staff, streamlining again. So this year we are starting to think about now what's next. As I mentioned, we have an eight week program. It's called Care at Elixir. The idea is that most patients go through that. It's a group based program. So it allows us to have more patients like come through. What does um, the program look like? We have an eight week program, patients come just before they start the eight-week program, they would see a kinesiologist on our team, have a full fit fitness assessment so that we know where they're at. They get an individualized exercise prescription to get them started. And then they start the eight-week program. Each week they come. They do an hour and a little bit in the gym here with our... Have, I was going to say, you have an on-site gym. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's small, so we have to keep our groups fairly sure, small. Yeah. But Careful we'll have like scheduling. sort of 10, 10 patients at a time. <laughs> They come in and we have the gym set up in different stations. Everybody warms up together and then everybody starts doing their own thing. The great part of it is that the there's the kinesiologist is there as well as a, we have a physiotherapist on site for those classes. And they'll go around and help the patients ensure that they're doing the right thing, helping them to build sort of uh, their confidence and self-efficacy around their exercise. It's not meant that they only do the exercise once a week. The goal is that they then go home and they learn in, the between the, yeah. in between the sessions, they're doing their regular exercise. But that's sort of a check-in each week and helping them gain some, some confidence and learning new exercises. And then following that uh, one-hour class, they come together and do a teaching class, which is a little didactic, but there is some interaction, certainly. Each week is a different topic. So the topics actually were determined by the patients themselves. Before we rolled out this program, we, hit, we did a survey of about 80 patients coming through our program, mm -hmm. asked them to prioritize, like if you were going through a program like this, what topics would you want to learn about? And then based on that survey, that informed, mm -hmm. again, this is where the research really helps to inform you know what we do so um, they that informed like the, 
the length of the program, the length of each session, and then the content of the sessions was all mm-hmm. based on feedback on their on our surveys that we did. So their topics are things like managing fatigue, learning relaxation techniques to deal with distress, mm-hmm. building social connectedness, social networks and social mm-hmm. connectedness, getting back sort of into your social life and how important that is. We have a session on nutrition where they're in the kitchen. So we have a teaching kitchen. They work with our kitchen. kitchen. I move in? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have a a wellness chef who's a fantastic, fantastic chef along with a dietitian. So they'll meet with them for an hour and sort of talk about sort of wellness and nutrition and how nutrition plays an important role in in their recovery. We have a session on um, neurocognitive. Uh, So each session's a bit different topic. And there's all goal setting throughout it. So the patients, each patient will have their own goals that they've set, mm-hmm. um, sort of an overall goal and then and then smaller goals. And so we're always checking in on those. And then at the end of the eight weeks, the goal is to sort of graduate them and get them out into the community and mm-hmm. have them familiar and uh, connected with the community resources that they need. Our intention is not to have people coming here for months and months and months. We don't want that. We don't think people want to do that. Our intention is to get them back on their feet and uh, sort of get them back into mm-hmm. their communities. But what we found is about uh, 40 to 50% of the patients that mm-hmm. we recommend to take that program aren't able to because they come from so far away or whatever the barriers are, the cost of coming mm-hmm. down here. They don't want to come down here every week. So what we've done is we, we are translating that program mm-hmm. to an online program. Mm-hmm. Patients will be able to get, yeah. they'll still come and have their exercise prescription done with the, with the team. And then they'll get registered into an online program where they'll have weekly modules where they learn mm-hmm. the, the material. But then they also will have support in terms of their exercise. So we'll still provide remote support with the kinesiologist. We'll check in with them. Yeah. They have uh, videos and different sort of demonstrations of their individualized exercises they should do and tracking how they're doing mm-hmm. with their exercise. So we're going to be rolling that out in the next couple mm-hmm. months. We have a couple of students that we've brought on board to evaluate it, and we'll compare mm-hmm. it to our in-person as well to see mm-hmm. if it's uh, just as... How effective uh, it is. Yeah. And, yeah. We do have two priorities, and we do usually have a couple priorities each year. So that's the one. And the other one is we're going to work closely with the palliative group because we're seeing more and more patients getting referred to our program that have metastatic disease. We know that a lot of people now can have metastatic disease for many, many years. Mm So stable metastatic disease or intermittent disease where sort of they're... Flare-ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. (laughs) Actually, those types of patients can benefit significantly from Mm -hmm. a a rehabilitation-type program where we're getting them physically active and teaching them in advance how to manage some of the symptoms that they might encounter. Mm -hmm. What we're doing this summer is we're going to do a survey of the patients coming into the palliative outpatient clinic. Very similar to what we did when we started our rehab program with our patients, looking at sort of the needs, what would be the topics that you would want to know about and learn about. And then we can look at what our current curriculum is and where we might need to adapt it. And then what we're hoping to do is pilot some some maybe uh, palliative or metastatic disease groups specifically so it's a little bit different and they may have a little bit of a different curriculum going through mm-hmm. and we can also look at our online program and see how we may want to um, build some additional modules that could be sort of individualized or tailored mm-hmm. to that population so that's the other project that mm-hmm. we're starting to roll out 
this summer. This is something that Kat mentioned that she's heard you talk about before, that cancer is now considered sort of a chronic Mm -hmm. illness, but we're treating it as if it's acute. How long do patients usually stay with you here? And Mm -hmm. do you see people like 20 years out from Mm -hmm. their diagnosis or from their cure? So just to talk about the idea of like our cancer system, and I, I think it really is important to mention that our program and other programs like this in Canada are not funded through our healthcare system. So cancer is still very much set up and funded as an acute care system, which means that they fund the diagnosis and the treatment of cancer, but they don't fund the recovery from cancer. What they will fund is the surveillance for recurrence Mm -hmm. or second primaries. You know, patients will come back and see their oncologist and have screening to ensure that their cancer hasn't come back. And that that's definitely funded. And that is part of survivorship care for sure. But what's not funded is the other really important pieces like, you know, intervention for persistent side effects and late effects and Mm -hmm. coordination of that care and stuff like that. So So I think it should be because, as you said, three quarters of patients now can expect long-term survival of cancer. But Mm -hmm. in some of the larger disease sites like breast and prostate, the survival rates are close to sort of 90 or above 90 percent. Most people are surviving, which is fantastic. And the overall actual survival rate is for all cancers is about three quarters. But if you look at patients who survive past their first year Mm post-treatment, then the survival rate goes up to sort of over 80%. So it's it's all a really great news story, good news story. But that isn't to say that when you survive, like when you finish your treatment and you have a good sort of prognosis, that there aren't these Mm -hmm. persistent side effects that people have to deal with and for some people they do actually very well they 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 can even work through their treatment manage really well treatment ends they get back to their lives get back to work everything's fine and for lots of people that's that's their story and that's Mm -hmm. that's great but I've talked about this sort of substantial minority of people who do seem to have persistent side effects and when I talk about a persistent side effect what I'm saying is uh, during treatment almost everybody will develop acute side effects of their treatment. So I talk about fatigue a lot because I think it's a good example only because it's so prevalent. Mm -hmm. So during treatment, some of the estimates are, you know, 80 to 90% of patients will have fatigue at some time during their treatment. And for most people, once treatment ends, after like a month or two, that fatigue sort of goes away and and then they start feeling back to themselves again. But there is this uh, group of patients, about a third to a quarter to a third of patients Mm -hmm. who, for some reason, and we don't really know the reason why, the fatigue doesn't go away. And it's not like fatigue like you and I would feel after we have a bad night's sleep or we work out too hard hard or whatever, (laughs) um, where we can just sort of, if we rest, we feel better. It's a fatigue that just doesn't really go away. The system is very much set up as an acute care system. And in one of my slides, when I always give a talk about cancer survivorship, I always talk about how, you know, the WHO talks about how disability is as important as mortality. You know, our system is very much set up in terms of reducing mortality, and we talk about beating cancer and, Mm -hmm. you know, the mortality rates and all of that. And that's obviously very, very important. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that we also have to consider disability in the discussion. And mm-hmm. cancer is such an interesting disease because in other chronic diseases, it's actually the disease process itself yeah. that causes the disability in a patient. But with cancer, it's actually the treatments that we give to people that causes the disability. And so often what you'll see is a person going along their life, functioning at a very high level, doing very well. 
And then they get diagnosed with cancer and sort of get into the cancer system and in a way mm -hmm. sort of gets released at the end or spit out of that system <laughs> at the end. A lot more haggard looking. With, uh, yeah, with sort of disabled, yeah. with nothing in place to help them with that. So that's sort of what our what our program is about. And I try as much as possible to advocate that that should be something that is funded by our healthcare system. Which makes sense. I mean, intuitively, it's going to cause more of a burden on the system to treat the disabilities of these people when they leave cancer mm -hmm. care, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, it almost makes sense on an economic level, right? So oh, for sure. For so many yeah. reasons. You know, they can't work. People can't work. Yeah. They can't babysit their, their grandchildren. There are so many things that uh, it impacts on people's lives. If they are fatigued or have the brain fog or they have functional issues, they're deconditioned, you know, all these things. Yeah. But how mm -hmm. do you promote resilience within your community here at Elixir? Mm -hmm. Well, we've done a lot. It's, it's hard what people do every day here. It, sure it is. Okay. Yeah. We have a big focus on our team and we have been very much focused on team building over the past few years with the whole redesign of our program. We also realized that we're a multidisciplinary team. And even though for many years they we have been we have been a multidisciplinary team and we brought on kinesiologists, which was a whole new discipline, we decided that it was really important for the team to first of all, we focused on everybody knowing what the expertise is of the other person. So understanding mm -hmm. that and then mm -hmm. it really helps if you do because you can rely on your colleagues and call on their expertise. And so we really started working on that to start with. We do team retreats. We do social activities. We have lots of team meetings where we go through cases. We talk about issues. We had our retreat on resilience last year. We also do our own sort of physical activity classes for our team. Nice. One of our massage therapists who does um, our lymphedema clinic, she does uh, seated massages for us. All of it, well, we always do donations and then we raise money for our walking team mm -hmm. uh, for the one walk. But yeah, so we try to promote resilience in that way. We do sometimes we have like a, a lunch that we... Mm -hmm. um, all contribute to and mm. Jeremy makes us a nice lunch mm. we try hard and you know we I think we've really been actually in the hospital leader in terms of resilience and whenever the hospital comes out with new ideas or I think we're always a little bit of, I, I want to boast and say we're a little we're bit ahead of the that. game sorry um, no but I think we are you About know time. Um, we, we have such an amazing team yeah. we really do I feel like I am so lucky to work with the team that we have it's a good feeling um, and mm -hmm. so you know I do things like I try as much as possible to be available and just say oh like if you ever want to grab a coffee and we can go for a walk a walk so we do these sort of walk and talks and people especially now that the weather's nice mm -hmm. it's like hey you know why don't we go for a walk and just go around Queen's Park for mm -hmm. half an hour we don't even have to talk about work we yeah. can just talk yeah. about our families or the weekend or whatever yeah an opportunity for people to bring up ideas and often that's what happens is somebody will say hey you know I've been really been thinking in our clinic that mm -hmm. I'd like to do this or this is an idea I had and so for me it's great for me to hear some of these things and then we can think about how could we you know support that or roll that out so yeah Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. So switching gears a little bit, we yeah. did want to talk about the research program you run. Sure, of course. Yeah, so I sort of bucket my research in three types of areas. Obviously, the whole overall theme of my research is on cancer rehabilitation survivorship, yeah. post primarily post-treatment issues. So the first 
type of research that I do is fairly descriptive. It's more about collecting data and understanding the needs of cancer survivors mm-hmm. across different uh, disease sites. So some of it's just sort of cross-sectional needs assessments or surveys. Yeah. We still need to learn a lot about what are the needs of cancer survivors. We still don't know a lot, mm-hmm. certainly around sort of some of the persistent and long-term side effects of treatment, but also just the supportive care needs of those patients. They know mostly what they are they just don't know how prevalent they are they don't know what are the risk factors Mm -hmm. and one of the challenges in doing that type of research is that you have to follow people for a really really long Mm -hmm. time so you need to have very large cohorts of people follow them for a really long time the other thing is is that the treatments change all the time right so sure you know by the time you follow people for 10 or 20 years who are on one sort of treatment protocol the gold standard is different. the mm-hmm. whole treatment protocol yeah the gold standard or the right the treatments have changed so those are some of the challenges i would say that uh the other thing is is that historically and i think it's still actually the case you know when patients come to see their oncologist for follow-up the focus is almost completely on recurrence so there isn't a lot mm-hmm. of questioning or screening for any of the persistent or late side effects. And now more and more, we're trying to transition patients back to their GPs and mm-hmm. back to like community-based medicine. And so we won't even be seeing them in our cancer centers anymore. So that's an additional challenge for actually mm-hmm. doing that type of research because we lose contact with them mm-hmm. once they get transitioned back back into the community. Anyway, so, so that's one area of research that, you know, there's still lots of work that needs to be done. One of the things that I'm trying to really focus on now in that field, in that area of sort of descriptive, is building these large prospective cohorts of patients. It's sort of like this big data type of approach. So I, one of my projects is with uh, funded through Prostate Cancer Canada is building a prospective cohort of patients across Canada in several of the large prostate centers and collecting both clinical and patient reported outcome data on patients at defined periods Mm -hmm. so sort of annually at treatment and then annually at follows to follow-ups so that we can look at the course of recovery Mm -hmm. what are the issues of these patients who's at most risk looking at special populations within that subpopulations Mm -hmm. and stuff Um, and we're starting to do that now hopefully with kidney as well and there's there's a lot of interest in how to collect that data but also you know what to how you can use that data Mm -hmm. so I'm really interested in that the other sort of area that I'm interested in is obviously interventions Mm -hmm. you know developing new interventions and approaches and tools and things like that to address the needs of cancer survivors Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, psychological or physical and some of the interventions that I'm really interested in are sort of more the behavioral and behavior change Mm -hmm. so we know for probably the most important thing is to get people physically active Mm -hmm. physical activity exercise can impact on pretty much all of the outcomes and all of the persistent side effects so it reduces fatigue it induces distress you know it helps with uh, brain health like all of these things improves deconditioning Mm -hmm. all you know improves bone health all the things that we see in our clinics but obviously the challenge and this isn't specific to cancer patients it's uh, really across our whole population is like how do you get people to be physically active who Mm -hmm. maybe haven't been in the past and to sustain that long term 
So some of my work is around that and around sort of the behavior change piece. And so we do that with health coaching, using mobile apps, wearable technologies, those types of things. Mm -hmm. The third area of my research is in knowledge translation implementation research, which is for me probably the most, I don't know, rewarding. I, I think it's really fun to do. So this is basically where you take current knowledge, whether it's tools or guidelines or things like that, and try to implement that into care. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about it is that, you know, you can actually see care change. Um, so an example would be uh, recently we did a study in smoking cessation. Here I was in a meeting and I realized that, you know, through Cancer Care Ontario had mandated that all the cancer centers are screening patients, mm -hmm. new patients, for their smoking status and then offering referrals to them. That's sort of what the mandate was. And so Princess Margaret had adopted that very early on and developed mm -hmm. a system where all the new patients were handed a piece of paper, asked about their smoking status, asked if they want to quit. And then the idea was that the paper then goes into the chart and then when the doctor or nurse uh, goes to see the patient with the chart, mm -hmm. they would then say, oh, I see that, you know, you're a smoker and you want a referral. And then they would create a referral for that patient and send it in. But while there was really good uptake in terms of sort of workflow was worked out really well in terms of getting the piece of paper into the patient's hands and them filling it out, mm -hmm. what was happening was that then nobody was actually looking at that piece of paper. So only about 19% of patients who said, I want a referral, were actually getting a referral offered to them, mm. which to so me, was, it is discouraging. And why ask if you're not going to do anything exactly. about it? So we started thinking, what, what are other ways that we could do this? Part of it is understand the rea understanding the realities of the clinics and how burdened the healthcare team is in the clinics where they're seeing, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of patients in the morning or in the afternoon, and they just really have very limited time. So how could we help them and how can we also help patients? So for that project, we did a more patient-directed approach where we sort of cut out the healthcare professional in terms of the referral process and we created an online. So patients were actually filling out that screening on an iPad. Mm -hmm. And then if they were interested in a referral, they were given information on the different referral programs and they can choose which one they want. And then it automatically would generate a referral and send it to the referral source. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we went from sort of a 19% referral rate to at a hundred percent so every single patient who says i mm -hmm. want a referral gets a referral now so that took 10 months to implement and mm -hmm. you saw a complete change in practice yeah right hospital. away yeah. so to me that kind of stuff is yeah. really rewarding it's mm -hmm. fun because you get to work with patients and with the healthcare team and to me implementation science isn't about you coming in and saying here's the solution we're going to mandate this or you, you have to do it this way but it's more working to come up with solutions from sort of a ground up approach and I just wanted to ask so you have all of these research projects of your own on the go you run Elixir here you run a very interdisciplinary team mm -hmm. how do you sort of manage it all and it also sounds like you're you're a family person right mm -hmm. so you have beautiful pictures of your children behind you here <laughs> and and you spend a lot of time there so mm -hmm. what would your advice be to people and I guess in particular the women who you work with who are asking you how you balance that yeah I mean for sure for me family is the most important thing I think families and friends and outside mm -hmm. of work is important for everybody back to the resiliency with our with our team I don't like our team to email after work hours I I won't respond to emails 
after work hours unless it's really necessary. There's no expectation that people work beyond their work hours, and I think that's really mm -hmm. important. If you don't have that balance, mm -hmm. you're not going to be happy anywhere at home or at work. For me, you know, I have three children. I'm really busy at home. I'm really busy here. I like being busy, though. It's That's just my personality. I like that. But my family's a priority for me. If that means that I don't publish as many papers as the next person, it's not that I don't care, but I, it's not as important yeah. to me. And there'll be many years probably when my kids are grown up and I've got extra time on my hands where I can do that. For now, they, they're my priority. But it makes me actually more productive when I come to work because... You know, I'm happy, I'm balanced, I can come to work, I don't mm -hmm. feel stressed or overwhelmed ever, I'm always pretty relaxed. I can be really efficient when I'm here. And so I sort of try to just lead by example that way. Um, you practice what you preach. Yeah, I practice what I preach. Even like the last few years we've brought on the kin team and mm -hmm. the whole idea of exercise and physical activity has become a huge message in our program. And I was like a really busy person and had a hard time getting mm -hmm. the exercise in myself, but I just felt it wasn't really right for us to be telling mm -hmm. you know people who had gone through cancer and cancer treatments you need to be exercising when I wasn't even doing it myself mm -hmm. enough right so I've really taken that on mm -hmm. I make sure I always get my physical activity I do yoga Pilates whatever it is yeah. I'm always trying to fit it in I carry a, like a gym bag in my car so <laughs> if I'm at a swim meet with my kids and there's a gym there I'll go to the gym during warm-up. Like, I try to find my times to yeah. fit it in. Yeah. Uh, you know, it actually goes back to when I was working as a postdoc in palliative care and interviewing mm -hmm. them for my for my research, hearing stories. At, you know, at that point, people really would like to talk about their lives and things. And they certainly very rarely would talk about how much money they made or what kind of car they drove or how mm -hmm. many papers they published or those types of things. It was more their family and their their family and their friends and trips and life experiences that were the things that mm -hmm. seemed to be most important to people so it really it was so important for me because you know I was in my 20s at that point it really made me realize how important those things are yeah. and I will never forget that awesome yeah I think Good that's a great time. place to end off. <laughs> yeah, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you so much. My pleasure. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.